Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You're listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series, The Gospel Matters. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. We're in Galatians 5. Um, For ancient cultures and civilizations, they viewed freedom much differently than we do today. If you were to ask ancient Greek philosophers or Babylonian civilizations, Egyptian civilizations, what they think about personal freedom or individual freedom, they probably would have replied, what are you talking about? They didn't have a category for understanding freedom in that framework whatsoever. Um, Freedom at that time was understood corporately. It was something that was defined by the culture a group of people, but individual freedom was, wasn't really well known at all. And, and still there's, even though we're, we're far removed now from that, there's still little pockets where we see this understanding of freedom. So it's the summertime at our house, and, and our kids are, they're a little bit more free in the summer. What that means is that they have the ability to, to do things that they don't normally do during the school year if they want to uh, go, go play outside during the day. They have a little bit more freedom to do that. But still, in our family, if, if you wake up and you want to go watch TV or play outside, there's a few things that we require that you do first as parents. You're going to make your bed, clean your room, and you're probably going to work on your summer reading list. All right? Before you can do anything else, you've got to do those things. And so my, my kids are free. Individually and personally, they're free, but there's, there's constraints to their freedom. There's certain things that we control their freedom in some way. And for the most part, that's how freedom was understood culturally and, and civically. It's only been really in the last 250, really 300 years that personal freedom and individual freedom has been emphasized more than any other thing. It's completely shifted now to the individual Especially in the West, freedom is, is almost solely determined by the individual person. Freedom is defined as, as the absence of any constraints. There's, there's nothing that can limit your freedom, otherwise it wouldn't be freedom in the first place. And so we are, we are free without any limitations. We are free without any authority structures, anything outside of us. Nobody is going to tell me what I need to do at any given moment in any given time in life because, after all, I am free. And the individual has become the final determiner of their freedom. Advocates of of personal freedom in these days adhere to something that's, that's known as the harm principle. You are free to do anything that you want to do in life as long as you don't harm somebody else. So the one restraint, the one constriction to personal freedom today is is the harm principle. And in this view, society and culture doesn't really have to lay down any moral guidelines whatsoever. Everyone is is free to live as they choose as long as you don't hurt anybody in the process, as long as you treat other people civilly and respectfully. You might say that the only sin that's not tolerated is the sin of intolerance. That's a a common aspect of of today's freedom and the harm principle. And as a result, philosophers talk about two kinds of freedom as it pertains to our world and our culture. There's negative freedom and there's, there's positive freedom. 
And negative freedom is just that, that negatively there's nothing that can infringe upon it. There's no obstacle to freedom. If there is any obstacle, again, that just proves that it's not freedom in the first place. It's also been coined with the phrase absolute negative freedom because there is absolutely nothing that can stand in its way. And to use an illustration from World War II, absolute negative freedom is a, a Maginot line. It's a barrier. Nothing gets past that barrier to infringe upon our absolute, complete freedom. The other type of freedom is, is positive freedom, and positive freedom is, is exactly the opposite. It has constraints, it has controls. There's something there that protects and, and helps a community to preserve freedom, not just simply an individual. Uh, Charles Taylor wrote, whoever refuses to obey the general, I don't know if I got, I don't have this on your slide. Whoever refuses to obey the general will be constrained to do so by the whole body. Uh, positive freedom uses a, a phrase coined by Rousseau, that you are forced to be free by certain power brokers and, and people that determine the extent and the limitations of your freedom. And most modern people, of course, if you give them the choice between these two things, what are they gonna choose? Most modern people, most postmodern people today choose absolute negative freedom. It's the Rolling Stones generation. We are free to do what we want any old time. And we love our freedom. We preserve and we fight for our freedoms. Absolute negative freedom is the only way that you can really enjoy life. It's the only way that you'll ever be completely happy and satisfied is if you can do everything that you want to fulfill your greatest desires and your greatest dreams because you're free. Absolute negative freedom is every teenager's and hippie's dream come true. We are free from all authority. We are free. Absolute negative freedom has some, some major problems with it. For one thing, if you adhere to this philosophy of freedom, it will absolutely erode and destroy any sense of community or corporate solidarity. Uh, absolute negative freedom holds to no, no loyalties whatsoever except for the sovereign self in your true feelings. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is not what a group of people thinks, it's not what your family thinks, it's not what a culture or a society thinks, the only thing that matters is what you determine for yourself. That's the narrative that you'll hear the most in terms of freedom in our country today. A culture where anything goes will always, always default to naturalism. Only the strong survive in this kind of culture. It is eat or be eaten. It is the law of the jungle. And you better fight hard because might equals right. And if you can stand strong enough on your freedoms and fight for them, then have at it. But if you are weak, you won't survive. Under the law of the jungle, no one has a right to stand for justice because there is no standard of justice. What Brad thinks is right is, is good for Brad, but that's not necessarily right for me. And so we, we tear apart each other because we don't have any kind of corporate sense of, of freedom. It's just for the individual. 30 years ago, Charles Taylor wrote an essay, and he debunked this whole idea of absolute negative freedom. It's entitled, What's Wrong with Negative Liberty? And he points out several reasons why 
negative, absolute negative freedom is untenable. It just doesn't work. One thing he points out is that not all restraints to personal freedom are equal. You're a free individual living in a, a free country. Bill Riggs is free to get up right now in the service, go across the street, and eat a Whataburger, whatever he wants. In fact, he can eat Whataburger for every meal for the rest of his life if he wants to because he is completely free. But I guarantee you this, if Bill Riggs chooses to eat Whataburger for every meal for the rest of his life, he will find himself enslaved to a slew of health issues and he will die with major medical problems because he has taken his freedom to its utmost extent. And so instead, here's what Bill does, he restrains his freedoms. Absolute negative freedom holds no ill will toward the person who's addicted to to pornography. If you do it in your own privacy and it doesn't harm anybody else, there's no reason why that's ever wrong in any situation. You're free to do that, but if you do that, you will find yourself enslaved to sexual desires and tastes that will absolutely destroy your relationships, destroy marriages, and destroy, destroy families because you have used your freedom to its utmost extent. In the United States of America, you are free to buy whatever you want to buy and be a consumer. You can get a credit card today and just go crazy with it. Whatever limitation it maxes you out at, that's where you stop. You have the absolute freedom to do that. But if you practice that freedom with no restraints and no control, you will find yourself enslaved to debt collectors and banks and financial hardship that will haunt you for the rest of your life. Actually, there, there really is no such thing as absolute negative freedom. It doesn't exist. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Another problem with absolute negative freedom is it holds no distinction between the things that we want and the things that we really want. When I went to Mississippi State University, I, I went to college because I really wanted to get a degree that was gonna help me get established in a career path down the road. And so I had some freedoms as a college student at Mississippi State. I could go out to the parties, hang out with the frat boys, and just live life and sow my oats in college. I had the freedom to do that. But what I really wanted to do was to have good grades, good education, build a network of friends that I could build, build a career off of and, and sustain a family by. And so my want for a party lifestyle was superseded by what I really wanted down the road and in the future, but absolute negative freedom doesn't leave any room for the things that you want and the things that you really want. Real freedom can only operate in an inverse dynamic. It's, it's really strange, this doesn't work in an economy of scales, but the way to experience more freedom, scripturally and practically in this life, is actually to give up your freedoms. If you wanna understand what a joyful, liberated life is like, it starts by surrendering yourself in restraining and controlling certain aspects of your freedom. If my kids willingly sacrifice their morning, make their bed first thing in the morning and clean their room, they will find all kinds of freedoms in the afternoon for that day. Mom and dad are gonna be a lot happier to extend those freedoms. But if they don't surrender their freedoms at the beginning, then they'll find themselves more enslaved to the things that we've asked them to do later on in the afternoon. Absolute negative freedom is, is an idea that only works on paper. It's a philosophy that's been debunked. Um, And the final proof is love. 
No love relationship can survive. No marriage can survive if both people aren't totally committed to sacrificing for the well-being of the other spouse. If you are unwilling to do that for the people that you love, you are unwilling to enjoy the freedoms that it secures. Love in marriage is a great example that on a daily basis we give up and we surrender our freedoms so that we can experience more and glorious and more pleasant freedoms in the future. A love that accepts another person as they are, never demands that anybody changes, will die a thousand deaths of self-absorption. Love, by definition, restrains freedoms. And so this morning what I want to do is, is look at this passage in Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to see what the Apostle Paul thinks about the freedoms that we have in Christ. It's not an absolute negative freedom, it's a positive freedom. And it's a freedom that engages and points us toward a motivation of loving one another. The Apostle Paul says, the second that you trust Christ, you are free. We have been freed from the slavery of sin. We have been freed from the condemnation of death. We have been freed from the world and from its systems that is decaying and will ultimately die. But if you think for a moment that the Christian life is absolute negative freedom, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us, think again. To enjoy freedom in the Christian life, we act responsibly and we sacrifice for one another. And if we don't do that, the result is that we will bite and devour and we will consume one another in the body of Christ, in your marriages, or even in your families. Last week, here's what we said. Legalism is dangerous. This week, here's what we're gonna say. Freedom is dangerous too. It's risky. And so the Apostle Paul gives us some avenues and some things to think about as we pursue Christian freedom. Uh, Look down in your text, Galatians 5, verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Paul says freedom is a calling, and that means at least this. You must make a response to the call of freedom. The call of freedom is the same as the call of the gospel. It comes from a person outside of yourself, and it comes to each of us individually. And just with this one phrase in verse 13, here's what Paul does. He separates all humanity into two categories. There are those who are free spiritually, and there are those who are enslaved spiritually. There are those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ and trust Jesus' death on the cross for us, and there are those who are enslaved to the world and to sin. And there is no middle ground between those two things. You are either on one side or the other. There is no neutral territory. And even though this text is written over 2,000 years ago, we would say, it is, it is like it's been written for the modern person, the post, postmodern person, who wants to take advantage of their freedom. But here's the other thing that, that we really struggle with in our time and in our, in our context here is when you say freedom, most people automatically begin to think in terms of political freedom, national freedom. Almost nobody will instinctively think about spiritual freedom and spiritual slavery. And here's the reality. Apart from Christ, we are all enslaved into the worst kind of slavery. It is the slavery of sin. We are all chained to death and destruction, and that is proven at the end of our lives when we all go into the ground and are buried in the dirt. 
All of us are enslaved to sin. There's a famous theologian who said this. He said, the worst kind of chains are the ones you can't see. Spiritual slavery at times is an, a prison that you can't even view with the eyes, but it's there and it's real. One of the worst lies of Satan is that unbelievers can think and should think about freedom solely in terms of national freedom and never in terms of spiritual freedom. We might live in a free country, but this world is not free. And everybody in it, apart from Christ, is enslaved to Satan, who is the warden of this great prison called the earth. Camus has a, a really fascinating quote. This reminds me of Star Wars every time I read it. He says this, the only, they, the only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. Christians who trust Christ are rebels, living in enemy-occupied territory. We are living in the prison of the world, but we are absolutely free. And there is a certain way that we should live in this world and take our orders from the general above not the devil below. And so in chapter five, Paul's main theme is freedom. In verse one, he warned against being lazy with our freedom, and so he told us to stand firm. Now in verse 13, he warns against the license of freedom, against just doing whatever we want, whenever we want, which should tell us at least this, freedom is dangerous. Paul gives us this great truth that we have been redeemed, but just like the warning label on a box of medication or a hazard label on a chemical container, freedom is risky, freedom is dangerous, and it is not to be handled haphazardly. Freedom has risks. There's a right way to live in freedom, and there's a wrong way to live in freedom. There's a mature way to live in freedom, and there's an immature way to live in freedom. There's a way to use your freedom that glorifies God. There's a way to use your freedom that doesn't glorify God and leads to pain and, and sin. Um, in the Chronicles of Narnia, Chronicles of Narnia is by far one of my favorite stories ever written. There's a novel called The Silver Chair toward the end of it. You guys familiar with, with The Silver Chair? So it's a really great story. In The Silver Chair, there's a, uh, there's a, a character called the Black Knight and the Black Knight doesn't realize it, but he has become enslaved to this wicked queen has cast a spell upon the knight. And the knight does all of the wicked queen's bidding. Whatever she wants him to do, the knight is there. However he wants, she wants him to respond and whatever things that he needs, she needs him to do, he does it without asking any questions. But she realizes the only way that she can get this black knight to completely and utterly be submissive to her every will and wish is if she cast a spell on him. And so the spell makes him forget everything, forget who he is, forget his past, forget the fact that he's from a free land of Narnia, forget the fact that he's actually a prince, he's royalty. Except for there's, there's just this, this one time every single day at night for one hour the Black Knight remembers absolutely everything. He remembers who he is. He remembers that he's been enslaved and captured by this evil queen. And the only way to keep this Black Knight from escaping at these times of, of translucence and, and where he finally understands everything again is if, if he is tied tightly to this silver chair. 
And as long as he's tied to that chair, no matter how much he screams, no matter how much he fights, he is forced to stay in slavery to the queen. And it's terrible when you read the story. Every night for, for exactly one hour, he comes back to himself. He pleads, he screams for freedom. Just somebody release him from the silver chair. He talks about the queen and what, what was done to him. He talks about his life and he's a prince and he wants to be a free person again in Narnia. And no matter how much he struggles, no matter how much he fights it, he is, he is trapped and he is tied to the silver chair. And every time I read the story, I think, what is, what is the power that this wicked queen has to just keep him in his slavery? Because of this one hour in this silver chair, how is, how is she empowered to keep him enslaved and not realize and break free from her spell? Verse 13 is a really interesting phrase. It says this, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And the word flesh is gonna be used now in chapter five abundantly, and so I just wanna take a little bit of time to understand it. When the Apostle Paul uses this word flesh, he doesn't just mean our physical skin. He doesn't just mean these things with sweat pores that we have that protects our body from, from infection, from disease, and from all these other things that we experience. What the Apostle Paul means when he uses the word flesh is much deeper than that, and it's much more theological than that. Skip down to verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, if the Apostle Paul was just talking about physical skin, how can our skin have desires? Desires is something that takes place in our heart, or maybe even in our mind. It's not something that goes through the avenue of our skin. There's something deeper. Listen to 1 John 2.16. It says that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is actually from the world. In 1 John 2.16, the flesh is said to have a lust to it. Again, a sinful desire. This is something greater than just our physical skin. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it talks about the passions of the flesh and that the flesh wages war against the desires of the Spirit on a daily basis, in a moment-by-moment -moment basis, there is a war that takes place through this thing called the flesh. When the Apostle Paul uses the word flesh, he depicted that part of us that is natural, that is temporary, and that longs for the darkness rather than for the light. The flesh is our identity in Adam that is temporary, and it will wear away. Instead of distinctly our identity in Christ. The flesh is the human individual in his or her sin apart from the redemptive work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts. It's the weapon that Satan uses to erase our identity in Christ. When the Apostle Paul uses the word flesh, C.S. Lewis uses the word silver chair. The flesh is the thing that ties us down helps us forget who we are in Christ and keeps us enslaved and imprisoned to an evil tyrant who will never give us the life that God created for us. Paul said, you've been freed from the slavery of the chair. You've been freed from the imprisonment of the sinful flesh. Do not use that freedom to engage once again the sinful desires that we all had before we trusted Christ. Do not use your freedoms to indulge in the pleasures that are 
more fit for your previous life in Adam than your present life in Christ. Do not submit to a, a tyrant who has been overthrown by the power of the gospel and by the power of Christ on the cross. And instead, restrict your freedoms because of what Christ has done for you on the cross. Christian freedom is not absolute negative freedom. Mature Christians restrain their freedoms. They control their freedoms. And they do it for a specific reason. They do it for for love of other people. They do it because they're not just considerate and thinking about themselves, but they're thinking about God and they're thinking about others. Number two this morning. Christian freedom is upside down and inside out. The more we sacrifice our freedoms, the more free we actually become. Look at verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, one phrase. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Have you ever seen uh, people who are, are good people in the world today that are doing amazingly good things for other people? Have you noticed how much of a, a philanthropist Bill Gates is? Or Oprah Winfrey is? You know how many people that she's probably put through college helped them get education and just the, just the social good that's happened through people, many people who don't even know Christ? Whenever I see these things happening in the world, and, and usually it's, it's something startling, it's some massive, huge amount that's been donated to whatever organization, I always think to myself, what is it behind these acts of generosity that are motivating the person? What is it that is, is driving them to show this, this generous heart and this love for other people? And the secular answer is, is typical, but it's, it, people don't do these things um, distinctly for loving other people. People are, are typically uh, philanthropists and, and giving and generous in, in their lifestyle and in their choices because they're choosing activities and, and things that are significant to them. They're doing it because they had an influence at, at camp in the summer at a certain place, and so now they want to help support that camp so that other people might be benefited by it. The famous atheist argues that this actually means some people are helping other people for their own sake, not for the sake of others. They're doing it because it helps them to feel better about themselves, to feel more significant, or that their life perhaps has a different meaning that it wouldn't have had. Paul proposes in verses 13 and 14 a test. There's a test to determine if your love and your generosity is something that is rooted specifically in you or something else. There's a test to determine if your love is genuine or if it's not genuine. And the test is, is simply that, it's, it's love. Who does this ultimately come back to? The reason that absolute negative freedom does not work is love. Love for God and love for other people. And Paul, in these verses, sounds a lot like Jesus. Remember when Jesus was questioned by the lawyer, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Remember what he said? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus determined that 
Love is the greatest commandment because underneath a relationship to God and a relationship to everybody else horizontally, love motivates. Love motivates our actions, it motivates our desires. It's the thing that changes us in our relationships with other people. The royal law is to love your neighbor as yourself. And the motivation, the reason behind it is not because we necessarily just want to limit our freedoms, but it's because we truly love God and we truly love other people. Perhaps one of the reasons that that marriages are in such hard times today is because of this motivation and because of this test and because of how people view their freedoms. Uh, When Brandy and I got married, we were just a couple of kids. If, If you go back and how, Thrutchley's, how old were you guys when you got married? I shouldn't ask, no, don't, a- don't answer that. I don't want people to know. Um, we were 23, 24 years old. If you look back at our marriage photos, I've still got acne and zits on my face. And anybody who was in Starkville, Mississippi on August 28th, 2004 was thinking to themselves, why is this kid getting married at such an early age? We didn't have a clue what we were doing. Uh, Very early on in our marriage, Brandy did something amazing. Uh, We knew we were going off to seminary. We knew it was going to be a very expensive endeavor. And so when we went off for five years at Dallas Theological Seminary, here's what she said. She said, Jared, I want to help you get through school. And so for the next four years, I'm going to sell drugs. She she became a pharmaceutical sales rep. And any of you who sell drugs know that it is a very lucrative business. (laughs) She willingly sacrificed her freedoms. Brandy's Brandy's dream in our marriage has always been to be a stay-at-home mom, to take care of the kids, to raise them and to disciple them in our home. And she put all of that to the side and she sacrificed her freedom to do that for love, for the sake of our marriage and so that we might enjoy a greater freedom down the line. Marriage and freedom and love, it's it's an inverse relationship, and it seems counterintuitive. The math doesn't make sense. It is bad economics. But in healthy relationships, when you willingly give up your independence in order to gain new freedom, you surrender your freedoms, you surrender your rights for the sake of another person. If you give yourself to God, our one true love, and you surrender your freedoms and your rights to him, you will experience a relationship that you never thought imaginable. It doesn't make sense that to experience a deeper freedom, we give up our freedoms, but that is the concept of biblical freedom. And that is how a body of Christ, marriages and families work in a healthy spectrum. Mature Christians restrain their freedoms More sacrifice leads to more freedom down the road. And those are hard decisions that we have to make. Number three, this morning, look down at at verse 15. But if if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. One commentator says that Paul is picking up the imagery of a pack of wild dogs in verse 15. Another commentator says this, the Galatians are admonished in colorful terms not to turn into animals that gnaw at and eat one another. And this paragraph, is, as Paul finishes this paragraph, he issues a warning, a strong warning, 
Danger ahead, slow down, the road gets curvy. If not handled biblically, freedoms in Christ are going to damage relationships. They are going to wreak havoc on your life. And they will not cause you to enter into more freedom, they will actually cause you to enter into more slavery. Just like legalism can hurt people, freedom in Christ can also hurt people, and it must be handled delicately. In order to, deli- in order to uh, communicate the dangers of freedom, Paul uses strong, strong terminology. This word bite in the New Testament, it is used one time. This is a hopox legomena. The one time is right here in Galatians 5, verse 15. Most scholars think that the Apostle Paul is picking up that word from a Greek translation of the Hebrew in the Old Testament. This Greek translation in the, in the Septuagint appears in Genesis 49. It's a poetic section, Jacob's uh, prophecy before he dies. It also appears in Numbers chapter 21, and, and Numbers 21 will take you to John chapter 3, where the serpents of Israel were biting in the camp. And everybody who looked upon the serpent on the staff that Moses had made was healed and lived on, but if you didn't look up at the serpent, you were going to die because these serpents were biting. They were gnawing at everybody and wreaking havoc everywhere that they went. Listen to Jeremiah 8, verse 17. Indeed, I am sending an enemy against you that will be like poisonous snakes that cannot be charmed away. They will inflict fatal wounds on you. That's the word for bite. Devour is used a little bit more often. It's about 12 times. You'll read this in the New Testament. Devour happens in Revelation 20. And here's what it says. Before the new heavens and the new earth will be created, the earth will be devoured by fire. It's used in Revelation chapter 12, where the dragon devours the child from the woman in labor. When Paul uses these two words, bite and devour, he is not painting a pretty picture of what happens when you are unwilling to submit your freedoms for the greater good of other people. He is showing the death and destruction that will result when you don't act responsibly with your freedom. If we don't practice our freedoms in Christ as mature Christians and responsibly, we will consume one another. We will literally eat away at one another. And the concept of community and family in the body of Christ will be non-existent. The, uh, the, the final time, the black knight was tied to the silver chair in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's, it's a really interesting story. He tells his, his would-be liberators that for an hour he's about to be tied to this chair and he's gonna scream out and he's gonna say ungodly things. But he tells them, don't listen to any of it. I don't know why this happens to me. Just don't rescue me. Keep me tied to the silver chair. And here's what he says. He says, listen, while I am master of myself, while this fit is upon me, it may be that I shall beg and implore you with entreaties and threatenings to loosen my bonds. They say, I do. I shall call upon you by all that is most dear and most dreadful, but do not listen to me. Harden your hearts and stop your ears. And he says this, he says, for while I am bound, you are safe. In the midst of his cries for freedom, he yells at his friends from the chair. I adjure you, set me free. In his right mind, he says, by all fears and all loves, by the bright sky above, by the great lion, by Aslan himself, I charge you. 
When they heard the name Aslan, they knew right away to free the Black Knight from his bonds. The instant the Black Knight was freed, he crossed the room in a single bound, Lewis writes. He seizes his own sword, which had been taken from him, and laid on the table beside the silver chair. He drew it, and he said, you first. He charges at the silver, silver chair, and the narrator says, it must have been a good sword. The silver gave way before the edge of the sword like a string, and in a moment, a few twisted fragments shining on the floor was all that was left of the silver chair. Jesus has a really mysterious saying in the Gospels. You, you guys have probably heard it before. It goes something like this. It's Matthew 10. You'll find it. Um, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but I have come to bring what? A sword. The reason Jesus says that is that in order to secure peace, eventually he will bring peace to the earth. When he returns, everything will be just as he designed it and just as God originally created in Genesis 1. But first, before that peace can be secured, Jesus came to bring a sword. He came to bring war against the kingdom of darkness and against the the tyrant Satan. And he will pick up that sword in a way that none of us would have thought he would. Jesus had the freedom to do many things to secure peace for mankind. He could have given us salvation in a variety of ways. After all, he was God. Many people thought that God was going to come in as a, as a riding general, conquering his enemies and setting up his kingdom and ruling and reigning from a, a throne of righteousness and justice, and Jesus absolutely could have done that. But instead, he chose a different route. Instead, he chose to sacrifice his freedoms. He gave up that freedom. Instead, he chose the harder path. Instead, he chose to submit his will to the Father, and his will was to lay down his life so that at the shedding of his blood, he would redeem the many and set free the many. Jesus gives us the ultimate example of cutting down slavery. Jesus gives us the ultimate example of of releasing our bonds as if we were sitting in the silver chair. He had the freedom to do it any way that he wanted to do it, but his glorious liberation would come by sacrificing himself and laying down his freedom for the sake of other people. Biblical freedom isn't free. Freedom is costly. Redemption is costly. Jesus is the perfect depiction that surrendering our freedoms actually leads to a greater and more glorious freedom than we could ever imagine. Freedom's price was the blood of Christ, the blood of the King, and he laid down his life that we could experience. Let me ask you a couple questions as we close. What do you have in your life right now today that you are unwilling to sacrifice for the sake of another? What is that thing that you are holding on to, convinced that you have a right to that thing, but you are unwilling to give it up for the sake of another person, 
another relationship? What are you holding on to that really does have the potential of harming others that you personally want to experience and enjoy, but you know will lead to an unloving aspect of, of relationships and who you are in Christ? Number two, what preferences and particulars are you personally willing to sacrifice for the sake of others? What things do you have in your life that there is no right and wrong necessarily, it's a gray area, and you prefer that you could lay that over so that somebody else can enjoy something instead of you? Freedom is motivated by a deep love for others. Spouses, when's the last time that you sacrificed your freedom for the sake of your spouse? What's the last thing that you did to show your husband or your wife, I really love you? And although I don't want to do this, I freely lay down and surrender this for you and for the sake of our marriage and for the sake of Christ. It's really interesting that uh, I want you to turn to this, this last passage. I'm just going to read this to end. Turn to Mark chapter 8. In our, our prayer calendar, we're praying Mark 8.34 today um, as a church body and, and just thinking about Scripture and different ways that we can pray to God through the text of scripture. I just want to read Mark 8, 34 and 35 as we close. Mark 8, 34 and 35, it says this. This is speaking of Jesus here. He says, and calling, to the crowd, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And let me give you today's interpretation of that passage. If anybody wants to come after me, let him lay down his freedoms. Let him surrender his freedoms for the sake of the glory of God and the kingdom of God. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, thank you so much for this passage and this truth about freedom that you've given to us in scripture. And, and Lord, this is a hard truth this morning. We are free because of what you've done for us on the cross and through Jesus. We have rights because of who you are. And yet you call us to lay down those freedoms, to lay down those, those rights for the sake of others and for your glory. Lord, give us the courage, give us the maturity to think about other people more highly than we think about ourselves. Help us to truly outdo one another in honor. Help us to think differently about our preferences and our practices for the sake of love, true love, for our families, our marriages, our church family. Help us to think about f freedom as a, as a responsible privilege that we wouldn't walk haphazardly and, and tout licentious living lifestyles because we have the freedom to do so, but we would be responsible, mature Christians, dedicated, careful with our freedom for the sake of a, of a group of people and for the sake of the kingdom that is so much bigger than us. Lord, give us a sense of, uh, of identity. Help us to remember who we are in you, that you have freed us from the entrapments and from the slavery of sin. 
that we might walk in newness of life. God, and we thank you most of all for the truth of the gospel and for the freedom that was secured on our behalf on Calvary. Uh, We pray all these things to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen. Thank you.